0: It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. Well, this morning, uh, we're going to look at another name of God, uh, which is uh, Jehovah Sabaoth. And uh, sometimes it's spelled with the T, and sometimes I've seen it without the T. So uh, I guess it's up to you. <clears throat> but uh, it's interesting that Jehovah Sabaoth is the Lord of hosts or the Lord of armies uh, or the Lord of angel armies is, is some different ways you could translate it. And uh, so just to dive in, I, w- I want to kind of give an overview of the name itself and then look at some key passages and then some practical application for all of us. Uh, this is what the Luxem Bible Dictionary <clears throat> says in terms of the phrase Lord of hosts. It says this, the phrase Lord of hosts, communicates God's role as a warrior who fights both in the cosmic conflict against divine forces and through human historical events for his people, Israel. The phrase, the Lord of hosts, appears 285 times in the Old Testament with a high concentration in the prophets, especially Isaiah, Jeremiah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, most often translates the Hebrew term hosts, with the Greek term, Almighty. So it's interesting, when you look at this idea of the Lord of hosts, which again shows up primarily in the prophets, even more so even in Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, you start to recognize that this term is a very frequent one that the prophets are going to use strategically. And as you come to the New Testament, there's a few great passages that talk about the God or uh, our God who is the Almighty. And let me just give you one example of that. Uh, In the New Testament, Revelation 11, verse 16 and 17, it's this incredible throne room scene. It says that 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces, worshiping God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. Our God is the Almighty One. Uh, In the uh, Jewish, the complete Jewish Bible translation, It translates that passage. We thank you, Adonai, God of heaven's armies. There it is. That's that Lord of hosts idea. The one who is and was that you've taken your power and have begun to rule. Uh, Another author, uh, Ann Spengler, says this about Jehovah Sabaoth. And I just thought this was interesting. Uh, She says, it is a title of great power. It occurs more than 240 times in the Hebrew scriptures, reminding us... Now get this, that all of creation, even in its fallen condition, is under God's rule and reign. At times, Scripture speaks of the Lord of hosts leading a great army, cherubim and seraphim, sun and moon, stars and sky, rivers and mountains, hail and snow, men and women, animals, wild and tame, all of these worship the Lord and are at times called to fight on His behalf. The Lord of hosts is a title that emphasizes God's rule over every other power in the material and spiritual universe, a God so magnificent that all creation serves his purposes. Isn't that a great way of just describing this God who has all of the hosts of heaven at his beck and call? Uh, In Blue Letter Bible, if you ever use that resource, uh, they have a page that kind of gives some study helps for the names of God in the Old Testament. And this is how they were defining Sabaoth. <clears throat> they said this, the name denotes God's universal sovereignty over his every army, sorry, over every army, both spiritual and earthly. The Lord of hosts is the King of all heaven and earth. So you get this idea that here is God <clears throat> and he is the commander over all of, of these hosts. And he is leveraging both creation and the spiritual, the angelic realm for his purpose and his plan. in other words, he is overall, he is the commander. He is the Lord. He is the uh, general over, overall. And uh, let me just give you a few of the probably more popular passages. Uh, Again, it shows up 285 times. And I thought about reading all of them this morning. Um, But we are limited in our time. So instead of reading all of them, again, on each of these names, you can go... There's so much more depth to each of these. But just in terms of an overview, let me give you some of the highlighted ones where we probably recognize them the most often. Uh, The first time the name actually shows up is in the book of 1 Samuel. And it actually comes in the prayer of Hannah. If you remember, Hannah is barren and she comes... And uh, she goes to the high priest, and she's asking to she's asking God for a child. And listen to Hannah's plea. She says in First Samuel one eleven, uh, Hannah made a vow and said, "Oh Yahweh of hosts, isn't it interesting that she uses this name? It's the first time it shows up in Scripture. If you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant." But will give your maidservant a seed among men, then I will give him to Yahweh all the days of his life, and a razor shall, not co- shall never come on his head. And of course, we know that the prophet Samuel was born out of this. It's interesting to me that Hannah is beckoning this name, which I would ask the question, how did she even know the name? And what you begin to notice is that though this is the first time it's mentioned, the idea of the Lord of hosts is mentioned even earlier. Uh, For example, in the book of Joshua, there's this great scene where Joshua is about to take the people over the Jordan River and he meets this individual and it appears like an angel, but we know in the conversation, it's not an angel. And and I'm going to read this, but it's because of the fact that an angel never allows a human to worship an angel. And yet this, quote-unquote, angel says, oh, worship. And he's going to ask Joshua to remove his sandals, which is a form of worship. And so we know that this is not an angel. So l- listen to this. In Joshua chapter 5, verse 13 through 15. Now it happened when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing opposite him with a sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us? Or for our adversaries? And he said, no. (laughs) Isn't that awesome? Rather, I indeed come now, listen to this, as the commander of the host of Yahweh. Now, it doesn't use the exact phrase, but it's the idea. I am the Lord of hosts. I am the commander of the army. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, what has my Lord to say to a slave? And the commander of the host of Yahweh said to Joshua, remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. So you have this scene where God himself shows up. The ground becomes holy. He says, you need to to take off your sandals and worship. And Joshua's like, who who, who are you? And he goes, I am the commander of the Lord's army. I am Jehovah Sabaoth. And if you want my personal opinion, I'm convinced that's Jesus. And Jesus was there standing before Joshua as the Lord of hosts, the commander of the Lord's armies. As you fast forward, then you get into the life of David. Here's, here's a young David, and his father sends him with some bread and some cheese. And he goes and he, he gets the, you know, the, goes over to the valley of Elah and gives his brothers and, and the commander the bread and cheese. And he hears the taunt of Goliath. And so he starts asking, uh, so you know, what, what is Saul gonna do to the one who actually deals with this threat? Like, why isn't anybody else dealing with this? And Saul calls him in, and then David goes out. And in the middle of the scene, listen to this. Saul, not sorry, Goliath is taunting David. And like, you're sending me kids. This is ridiculous. L- listen to David's response. It says that David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin. Now, if someone came to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, I'd be a little nervous. But David is overwhelmingly confident. Why? Because his perspective, his confidence is not in the flesh. Listen to what he says. But I come to you in the name of Yahweh of hosts. The God of the battle lines of Israel, whom you have reproached this day, Yahweh will deliver you into my hands and I will strike you down and remove your head from you. And I will give the dead bodies of the camp of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that Yahweh does not say by sword or by spear for the battle is Yahweh's and he will give you into our hands. Uh, If I was Goliath and I actually knew what David was saying, it would have been totally reasonable for Goliath to run tail and head the other direction. Do you hear what David is saying? Yeah, you're coming at me with all of the strength in the flesh, but I am not not coming at you in the flesh. I am weak. I'm a kid. I, I have no sword or spear. But what I do have is the God of hosts. And you realize, if you actually understood who God is, even without his army, God alone can win any battle. And it's not just God coming against you, it's God and his host. And so could you imagine if Goliath actually had any wherewithal of what David was actually saying, and not looking at it from the lens of the flesh, it would have been reasonable for Goliath to be like, I'll just surrender now. Why? Because if you have Jehovah Sabaoth on your side, then he will win because who can stand against the Lord of hosts? Uh, In Isaiah 9, listen to this great prophecy. It's a messianic prophecy. Isaiah writes, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, And the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or a peace, on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forever. And then listen to the end line here, the zeal of Yahweh of hosts will accomplish this. It's interesting, as you especially work through the prophets, uh, when you see that phrase, the Yahweh of hosts is going to do this, it's, it's like it gives it an extra emphasis. It's like it gives it an extra oomph in, in the proclamation, or it gives it an extra weight backing it up. In other words, it's not just God doing this. This is the God that has all of the angelic host at his beck and call. He is the one declaring this. So isn't it any thought about the coming Messiah? The declaration, the zeal, the, the passion, the fervor of Yahweh of hosts will accomplish this. In other words, it, that's a done deal. That there's no question on the, on the table. This is absolutely going to happen. Why? Because the one who is more than able and has everything at his beck and call said it. A uh, similar idea shows up in Isaiah 14, verse 24. Yahweh of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely, just as I have intended, so it has happened. And just as I have counseled, so it will stand. In other words, if he says it, it is, it is guaranteed. This thing will come about. What do we need to recognize that Yahweh of hosts... Who came in the flesh, his name is Jesus, has spoken to us through his word. And what he says is guaranteed. That you can take it to the bank. What if we began to actually believe the word of God? And we didn't tremble and go, well, maybe, maybe he can, maybe he can't. Wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be interesting if we didn't question who he is or what he said he can do? That we begin to recognize that he's not just merely God, that would be sufficient but he is God that has a host at his beck and call. It is guaranteed. What if we began to believe that? Uh, There's several other names in the Old Testament that have a very similar sense to it. And I just wanna give you three of them, just so you are aware of them. One is this idea, the Lord mighty in battle. Another one is the Lord strong and mighty. And the other one is warrior. And that idea that God is in the battle, God fights, God is strong and he's mighty. God is a warrior. That idea happens over and over and over. And it's different names, but I just I want to introduce them at least briefly, uh, just so you recognize that there's some layers to this idea that he is the commander of hosts or he's the Lord of hosts. Uh, a great passage was seen at least to these names is in Psalm 24. Uh, in Psalm 24, verse eight through 10, The psalmist says, who is this king of glory? And then he says, Yahweh, strong and mighty. Yahweh, mighty in battle. And it's not just an action that God is doing. In other words, this is so a part of who he is that they actually become titles. That our God is the one who is strong and mighty. That our God is the one mighty in battle. And the psalmist goes on and says this, Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift yourselves up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is he, this king of glory? Yahweh of hosts. He is the king of glory. Selah. So do you recognize that our Lord of hosts, our Yahweh of hosts, our Jehovah Sabaoth, do you recognize that he is strong and mighty? That that he is mighty in battle? in the book of Joshua chapter 23, Joshua says this, and you have seen all that Yahweh your God has done to all these nations because of you, for Yahweh your God is he who has been fighting for you. Joshua says, look around as we've been coming into the promised land and as we've been taking over over the nation and, and we've been defeating the enemies of God, he's the one who's been fighting on our behalf. And wouldn't it be neat to recognize that the same God who fought physically in the Old Testament is the same God who wants to do that in your life spiritually, in the new? That, that our God is fighting for you. That, that he doesn't want giants to rule your life. That he, he doesn't want sin and darkness to push you around. He is mighty to save. Moses says this, Yahweh is a warrior. Yahweh is his name. Isn't that a great statement? Uh, or in Isaiah 42 verse 13, Yahweh will go forth like a warrior. He will awaken his zeal like a man of war. He will make a loud shout. Indeed, he will raise a war cry. He will prevail against his enemies. In other words, he's fighting, folks. Uh, and I love, I love this idea in Psalm 2, but it's this idea that the enemy, the best that the enemy can pull off will only make God laugh which is a delightful thought because when I look at the world today and I look at the enemies of God and all and how they are conspiring against God and conspiring against his people, it brings about a trepidation of like, well, what if, well, what if culture goes downhill? What if there becomes a world government? What if there's that, you go on, whatever. And we have Christians all over the place who are, um, producing or declaring all this fearful nonsense. And we are so distracted in the church today because of all this foreboding of what could be coming in the future. Uh, Excuse me. Do we not know who our God is? Do you realize that even the best that the enemy can can muster still makes God laugh? So listen to Psalm 2. I love this. Why do the nations rage? And the people meditate on a vain thing. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed. Speaking of the Messiah, Jesus. Saying, so listen, this is what the enemies of God are saying. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their courts from us. And then listen to this. He who sits in the heavens laughs and the Lord mocks them. Love that imagery. So in the church, for whatever reason, we are foreboding. We're walking in timidity. We are walking with anxiety. We're looking at the future going, oh no, what if, what if, what if? And God is looking at everything that the enemy can muster. And he's looking down from heaven going, wow, that's the best you got. And he chuckles. And then he starts to mock them. Really? You should try harder. Come on, buddy. You can do it. You can do it. Do you realize that if God is looking down from heaven and mocking the work of the enemy, why are we walking in fear? Why are we looking to the future with foreboding? Why why are we walking with timidity? Why Why are we concerned what the enemy can pull off when the best the enemy can pull off, God is mocking? He is laughing. Uh, G. Campbell Morgan, who is a great classic preacher, said this, The phrase Jehovah of hosts teaches us that Jehovah is absolute, sufficient, and superior. It declares to us that God is the Lord of the heavens and all their inhabitants. As one has beautifully expressed it, the universe of matter and the world of mind were not only created, but are marshaled and ordered by God. Everything is under his command, folks. In fact, he will even use the work of the enemy to bring about his purposes. So why are we we running around in fear and anxiety? Now, with that kind of as a basis, I want to bring up a quick tension with this name, Jehovah Sabaoth. So there is this tension that you're caught in. And I'm gonna describe it as like two locations because I think it's probably easier to describe it that way. So when we talk about the fact that God, the Lord of hosts, is who he is, there is this idea, it's, it's a place of wow. And that was, the, that was the best alliteration I could come up with. <laughs> that at least matched with the other one. But there's this idea, it's a place of wow, which, is, which bespeaks of his, this idea that he is a refuge and rest. That because he is the Lord of hosts, do you realize that he becomes our refuge and he becomes our rest? Uh, a great picture of this is seen in, in Psalm 46. Listen to what the psalmist says. He says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, even though the earth should change and though the mountains shake in, in, into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its lofty pride. Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High, or El Elyon. God is in the midst of her. She will not be shaken. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations roar, the kingdom shake. He gives his voice, the earth melts. Yahweh of hosts is with us. God of Jacob is our stronghold, Law, Come, behold the works of Yahweh, who has appointed desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts up the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. And then listen to what God says. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Yahweh of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold, say Law. Do you hear what the psalmist is saying? It does not matter what is happening around us. Even if the earthquakes and the mountains are picked up and thrown into the sea, even if the sky is ripped asunder, we have a refuge. We have great hope. We have safety and security. Why? Because Yahweh of hosts is with us. And so if the one that literally controls all things is with us, there is no need to fear. He is our refuge. He is our fortress. He is our strong tower. So we can rest. We can be calm. In fact, at the very end, in verse 10, most translations translated as be still and know that I am God. But I really like that way of describing it. Cease striving and know that I am God. That word in Hebrew, cease striving, means to be still, to grow slack, to release, to let go or relax. But but here's what one of the Hebrew dictionaries defined it as. I just, I really like this. It means to hang limp. Isn't that hilarious? Not haha hilarious, but isn't that interesting? It means to be feeble. In other words, it's to be in a state of lacking power or force with a focus that the muscles have lost their muscle tone to flex. And so respond to a situation. You hang limp. Isn't it interesting that most of us, it's like we're flexing and we're girding our teeth and we're trying to, uh, and we're trying to know God and we're, and we're trying to pull this thing off and we're trying to do Christianity and we're just, uh, I don't want to be fearful. And God's like, settle down, just go limp. Isn't it interesting uh, if you've ever tried to save someone who's drowning? That if they don't go limp, it's really hard to save them. Why? Because they're trying to flex and they're trying to save themselves, but you're trying to save them, which because they're not, it actually makes it harder to save them. So though it's totally backwards of what you want to do, if you are drowning, the best thing you can do, if someone's trying to rescue you, is just, I'll go limp. And I'll let all my muscles lose their tone and their flexing so that someone else can come in and do the rescuing work. And God says, Would you do that? And in that, know that I am God. That you can't flex your way into this. God says, Cease striving, just just hang limp, just and know. By the way, it's the Hebrew word that's uh, the similar idea to the word Gonosco, that intimately knowing, experientially knowing. And know that, that I am Yahweh. Yeah, the earth may be quaking, and yes, the mountains may be picked up and thrown into the sea, but would you quit striving and just know who I am? I am Jehovah Sabaoth, I'm the Lord of hosts. Or, or look at Psalm 84. I love Psalm 84. The the psalmist says, How lovely are your dwelling place, O Yahweh of hosts. My soul has longed and even fainted for the courts of Yahweh. My heart and my flesh sing out, sing for joy to the living God. Even the bird, think about this, even the bird has found a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she sets her young. At your altars, O Yahweh of hosts, my King and my God. How blessed are those who dwell in your house They are ever praising you, Selah. O Yahweh of hosts, how blessed is a man who trusts in you. Do you realize that he is a refuge and a resting place? Even, Even the birds find a resting place in the presence of the Yahweh of hosts. And so you get this beautiful idea of like, whoa, wow, he's a place of calm, he's a place of rest. He's a place of refuge, no matter what is going on. But the other side of that tension is that he's also the place of woe. In other words, he is perfect holiness, perfection, and righteousness. You get this beautiful scene in Isaiah chapter 6 where Isaiah comes into the temple, and and listen to this, uh, in terms of this idea of the woe. Uh, Isaiah 6, in the year that King Uzziah In Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up with a train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called out while the house of God was filling with smoke. Then listen to what Isaiah says. Woe is me, for I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King Yahweh of hosts. So you get this idea that there is this, wow, there's, wow, there's, he is my refuge, he is my rest, he is my joy, he is my, and on the other side, you have this, woe is me idea, that he is perfect Righteousness that he is perfect holiness, and if you are going to dwell in his presence, then do you recognize that it will reveal everything in your life that is not right? And it will scrutinize you, and, and, and it will purify you, and it will... And you realize if you actually saw him high and lifted up as Yahweh of hosts, it would cause a tremble in your soul. And we have so dumbed down the holiness of our God where he's just become a buddy, and it's true, he is a friend, and he is a lover of our soul, and all that is so true, but do you recognize that he is still holy? And here's here's Isaiah seeing, seeing God high and lifted up, and he's trembling with fear. Why? Because he sees the absolute perfection and the holiness of Yahweh of hosts. So there's this interesting tension then where you have this place of refuge and rest and this place of, oh no, I don't want the Yahweh of hosts standing against me. Uh, In fact, look at what he says in in Nahum. Uh, God is speaking uh, through Nahum to the city of Nineveh. This is sometime after, I think it's a hundred years after Jonah. And God says this, Behold, I am against you, Nineveh, declares Yahweh of hosts, and I will burn up your chariots in smoke, and a sword will devour your young lions, and I will cut off your prey from the land, and no longer will the voice of your messengers be heard. Do you realize to be on the side against the Yahweh of hosts would, would be the most scary place? I mean, it would be hell. Hell. Because you have not just God, but the God who has all of the host of heaven standing against you. As you come in the New Testament, it's fascinating to me to think that there was a battleground where the God of hosts, the one who is a warrior, had his greatest battle. And it's the battleground of the cross do you realize that Yahweh of hosts came as a man and actually fought as a warrior against sin, death, and the grave, and he won? And the greatest battleground for Yahweh of hosts was actually on your behalf. Uh, Isaiah chapter 47, verse 4 says, our Redeemer, think about this. Do you know who our Redeemer is? His name's Jesus. But Isaiah says, our Redeemer Yahweh of hosts is his name, the Holy One of Israel. And what did he do at that cross? Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. So in Hebrews 2.14, the writer says, Do you know what Jesus did? He went to battle and defeated them. Or or look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 55 through 58. He's quoting the Old Testament. He says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Now the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is a law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Do you realize that Jesus dealt a death blow to sin in the grave? That death and darkness have no power? Why? Because the Lord of hosts won. And do you recognize what a beautiful thing it is to realize that, that God stands in opposition to sin. Now, that's not good if you walk in sin. <laughs> but do you know how beautiful that is if we're in Christ Jesus and walking in light? Because that means God is desirous to remove every ounce of darkness in your life. Look at what Paul says in Philippians 1.6. He says, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ." jesus that he's not done with you that that he is desirous to sanctify and cleanse and conform you to the image of christ or let me say it this way that the yahweh of hosts has set himself against and defeated darkness and sin which is a great joy for those in christ and walking in the light because god delights to sanctify to purify to consecrate and to conform us to the image of christ and what, what that means is if I find my refuge in him, though it is a place of woe, do you realize that if I would come to him in my place of, as a place of refuge and rest and actually allow him to do his work, he will remove sin and darkness and death from my life. That he's going to purge everything in my life until I'm conformed to the image of Christ. That's actually a tremendous blessing and promise for us. That, that I don't have to allow the giants in my soul to rule and control. That I, I don't have to allow the habits and the addictions to have sway over my life. Why? Because God is desirous to set me free. And so any dust particles in my life, God is going to get rid of. If I would allow his transforming work to do something in me. I, I quote the passage all the time, but, but 2 Peter 1.3, that everything we need for life and godliness is found in Christ Jesus. Look at the very next verse, in verse 4. Peter says this, For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Do you realize that God actually wants to share his life with you? And as such, he actually, though you are in the world, The taint and the destruction and the sin and the pollution of this world, he doesn't want in your life. In fact, it says that you've escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Why? Because he he dealt a death blow to it. Wouldn't it be amazing to recognize that God is working on you and that he is more, as the Lord of hosts, he is more than able to save you well, I, I know, but I've got, some, I've got some deep-rooted issues. I know, he can save you. I, I know, but I've got some really big giants. I know, but he can save you. Why? He's the Lord of hosts. What can stand against our God? Or as the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 7.25, that he is able, listen to this, to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Do you realize that right at this very moment, Jesus is fighting on your behalf? He's at the right hand of the Father making intercession for you. He's fighting. And he's able to save you to the uttermost. If you want a different translation, uh, the, the, the Christian Standard Bible says it this way, that he is able to save completely. Or the Amplified says it this way, Therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost, meaning completely, perfectly, finally, and for all time and eternity. He's able, folks. Why? Because he is Jehovah Sabaoth. So in light of all that, I want to give you three quick practicals of of how how do we need to respond? How, How do we need to posture ourselves in light of the fact that he is Jehovah Sabaoth? Uh, number one is this idea of obedience. If God Himself truly is the Lord of Hosts, do you realize if He is Commander over all things, it implies that we are we are to obey Him implicitly and immediately. In other words, if He is over all, that includes you. Which means if He says something, we must obey Him. That we don't we don't consider it. We don't take it under evaluation. We just say. Yes, Lord. And we humble ourselves and we do it. I don't know if you ever heard that great story uh, in that time between Malachi and Matthew uh, in the 300s BC, uh, Alexander the Great uh, was conquering the world and he was Hellenizing, is what the term was, uh, bringing Greek, the Greek thought process and the language to the world. And he was making his way over to India and he gets to this castle thing and He comes up to the king, and he basically says, surrender. And the king's like, who, who do you think you are? And Alexander goes, okay. And so there was a cliff near this castle, and so he takes, as the story goes, I think it was 100 of his best trained military guys, and says, march. And they started marching off the cliff. And I think, I think it was, I heard the number 11, but it's, it's somewhere like after 11 or 12 guys had fallen to their deaths, He says, stop, and he looks at the king and says, how do you want to respond? And the king realized that if if, if Alexander the Great's troops had such an obedience to this commander, nothing will stop them from taking this castle. So he raised the white flag and surrendered. Now, if Alexander the Great had such authority for his troops, how much more should the Lord of hosts have authority over your life? That we don't question his command, we just say yes. And maybe we become like a Jim Elliott or innate saint that God sends off into the jungles, and the moment we get to the people, we die. And you're like, well, what a waste! But do you recognize that if you actually know who your God is, you recognize he never wastes anything? That that was that was how. Or that was the turning point that literally flipped that entire tribe to hear the gospel. So, so however he wants to use you. What if he? What if he throws me into the back? You know these backwoods and nobody ever knows who I am and nobody ever knows what I do. What if he calls me to pastor a really tiny church where no one knows my name and and you know hey we just have the thirty people and why does that matter? Be faithful. So whether he gives you a platform or whether he doesn't give you a platform, whether, he, whether, whether a biography is written of you or not, why does that matter? Why would we not obey and be faithful in whatever he has called us to? He is the Lord of hosts. Uh, the cherubim, have you ever studied the cherubim? It's really fascinating. Uh, Ezekiel is a really weird book. But when you, when you read through the cherubim, uh, of Ezekiel, it's interesting that the way they're described is they're, they're brilliant, that they could run their own worlds. And yet, the ones that carry the throne, Ezekiel says this, that they are so in alignment with God, listen to this, Ezekiel 1.12, that each cherub went straight forward. Wherever the spirit was about to go, they would go without turning as they went. Do you realize what they're doing is walking in absolute obedience, the, 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 they don't have their own opinion. They don't say, well, I'm going I'm to go over and do this. They just say, yes, Lord. They don't turn to the left or to the right. They just go straight wherever the Spirit leads. What if we would take a cue from them and just say, yes, Lord, that if you are the Lord of hosts, I can trust you, that I will come under your command. Listen to what Jesus said in John 14, verse 15, to his disciples. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So why don't we? So do you recognize we need to walk in obedience? Uh, Number two, we need to walk in humility because God opposes the proud. It's interesting, in the book of Jeremiah... Jeremiah is given a prophecy against Babylon. Babylon's going to come in and destroy Jerusalem. And listen to Jeremiah 50 verse 31. God says this, "Behold, I'm against you, O arrogant one," declares Lord uh, Yahweh of hosts, "For your day has come, the time when I will punish you." Now, of all the statements I don't want said to me, that one's pretty high on my list. Where the Lord of hosts, the God Looks at me and says, I'm against you, you, oh, arrogant one. Gulp. But do you recognize that every time we walk in pride, uh, let me just give you the passage. 1 Peter 5.5. Peter says, all of you clothe yourself with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That word opposed is a super scary word to me. It literally means to hold at arm's length. It means to stand in opposition to, and it means to literally set your armies against. So think about this. Here's the Lord of hosts. And if I walk in pride, he will keep me at arm's length. He will set himself against me. He will literally set his army against my life. So the message of Jeremiah to Babylon is the message to me. Nathan, you can't walk in pride. I will give grace to you if you will humble yourself, but Nathan, if you walk in pride, I will oppose that. I I will set my army against you. I I don't know about you, but that is not a position I want to be in. So what are we called to do? If, If God is... Jehovah Sabaoth, I am called to obey. I'm called to walk in humility. And lastly, I'm called to be fearless. That if he truly is Jehovah Sabaoth, there is no reason to fear. If we just had God on our side, there is no reason to fear. Let alone if we have his army on our side. Remember that great scene in in the garden? Jesus was praying, the soldiers come, Peter grabs a sword, cuts off the ear, and Jesus is like, put the sword away, Peter. Come on, buddy. Seriously, you're a fisherman. You're not gonna do well anyway. He didn't say that part, but you know, that was implied. <laughs> you know? But then Jesus makes this statement. He's like, Peter, get a clue. Don't you know? And listen to this. Do you not think that I cannot, sorry, or do you not think that I can appeal to my father? And he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. Peter, I know you're trying to help, but buddy, I don't need your help. If I wanted help, I would just go and say, dad, I need some help. And God without a blink would send 12 legions of angels, which by the way, would not be the total amount of the army, right? We're just talking about a small force. Uh, One legion, a Roman legion was somewhere between five and 6,000 troops. We have all the ancillary things, so Jesus is talking somewhere. Do you recognize all I would have to say is, "Dad, could you send some help?" And God would send over seventy thousand angels. <clears throat> I don't know if you go if you remember your stories uh, from the Old Testament, but there's this great passage during the time of King Hezekiah. The Assyrian army has surrounded Jerusalem. And Hezekiah, you know, this whole scene, they decide that they're going to trust their God. And it says that one angel, one, shows up and in one night kills 185,000 of the Assyrian troops. That's one angel. And Jesus says, Peter, I don't need you. If I would just ask my dad, he would send 12 legions. That's 70,000 angels. And if you just want to do the math really quick, that would equal 13 billion people that those 70,000 angels, if you did the 185,000 for each one, could handle, which is more than our planet. (laughs) And Jesus is saying, Peter, I don't need you holding a sword. right? I'll be fine. But what if we actually recognize that that principle is still true in our lives? That folks, we have God on our side. That alone tips the scale every time because he's God. And if that wasn't sufficient, which it is, we also have the host of heaven. The armies of heaven is at his beck and call, which is far more than 70,000. You understand that. So why do we walk in fear? Why why are we foreboding? We are like you know that, in that story with Elisha and his servant. The servant goes out and sees the entire Syrian army surrounding the, the place where Elisha was at, and he runs in and says, "Alas, master, what what are we going to do?" And and I love I love how it ends here. Elisha prayed because he says, "Do you not recognize there's more of us, more with us than with them?" And Elisha prays and he says, "Open the eyes." Uh, oh sorry oh Yahweh I pray open his eyes that he may see and, and Yahweh opened his eyes of the young man and he saw and behold the mountain was full of cho- horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha if you knew that God's army was surrounding the army of Syria it makes sense why Elisha's not afraid it, it makes sense why he's just at rest it, it makes sense why he could say there's actually more with us than with him do you realize that you could always say that if God is on your side? Even if it's just God. You could be surrounded by the entire world and you could still say, there's still more with us than with them. Because you have God, let alone his armies. Why would you fear? Why, why, why would you walk in trepidation if you recognized that the God of the universe is on your side? I haven't studied it out to see if it's true, but I've been told that the number one command in Scripture is do not fear. That the one that's repeated most often. And Richard Wormbrandt, uh used to say that there were 366 clear or distinct commands to do not fear. And supposedly he had all 366 of them memorized, which is one for every single day of the year, including leap year. And Richard Rembrandt said that that was actually a good thing because the day that he was taken prisoner and thrown into the Romanian prison was on a leap year. It was on on February 29th of that year. And as he had the black hood over his head and he was sort of in the back of the car and as he was being taken off to prison, he was saying, Lord, there's even a command not to fear on this day, so I will trust you. See, what if you had that kind of perspective? To realize that your God is Jehovah Sabaoth, that he is the commander of the Lord's army. He has the host at his beck and call. In fact, he can even command nature to do his bidding. Why why do we walk in fear? Why do we walk in anxiety? Why do we walk in foreboding? Doesn't it make sense when, when Paul writes like Philippians 4, 6 or 7, be anxious for nothing? Do you know what the word nothing in Greek means? Nothing! Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And listen to this, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, it will be like a sentinel to your soul and will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. How's that possible? Well, because you have the one who is peace living within you. It's because you have the Lord of hosts spirit inside of you. So why would you fear? Why, why would you ever walk in anxiety if you knew who your God was? Or listen to Hebrews 13. <clears throat> he himself has said, and by the way, this is a quotation of Deuteronomy Joshua in Psalms. But he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? If you knew that God looked at you and said, hey, I will never desert you. I will never forsake you. Wouldn't you recognize that you could confidently say, oh, oh, the the Lord is my helper. What would I have to fear? What could humanity do to me? That would cause me to walk in fear if I knew that the Lord promised to never leave or forsake me. And I think I've pointed this out before, but um, the word dessert uh, is this idea of like you forget something. Like I go on a trip, I forget a toothbrush. Ah, no worries. I'll just replace it. God says, I'm never going to do that to you. The word forsake is a similar idea, but it's always in relationship. And God says, I'm never in relationship going to forget about you. And what's really neat about the passage is that five times the word never shows up in the Greek. And then in the grammar, there are two more. So seven times there is this never idea. So it's like God looks at you. And by the way, repetition is really important in scripture. I don't know if you ever heard that. But God looks at you and says, I promise I will never, 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 never leave or forsake you. Which probably means he's trying to tell us something. In other words, he's not just going to say, well, I'm never going to do it. Well, maybe sometimes. You can't say that in the passage. Because he himself has clearly said, I will never do it. I will never do it. I'm never going to leave you. Never going to forsake you. Never, never, never going to do it. And so if you knew that God himself has said, never, 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 wouldn't it make sense that we would say, oh, the Lord is my helper. Whom would I have to fear? What could humanity do to me if God has promised to never leave or forsake me? I can have confidence in my God because I know who he is. So just in wrapping up, can I just give you one quick commission Would you consider and would you return? I really, I really love these two passages. In in Haggai, or Haggai, chapter one, verse five, and verse seven, it has this repetition. So now, thus says Yahweh of hosts, set your heart to consider your ways. And then it repeats it in verse 7. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, set your heart to consider your ways. Can I? encourage you, would you consider your ways? Are are you walking in obedience to him? Are you walking in humility? Are are you walking in a fearless confidence, dauntlessness? Could could you look at the Goliath of your life and like David say, I'm not coming against you with flesh and blood stuff because my battle is not against flesh and blood. My battle is spiritual. And I have Yahweh of hosts on my side and he will fight for me. Would you actually consider how you are living? Would you consider if there's any sin in your life and recognize that God is opposed to sin and darkness and pride and he wants to really press and change and transform all of that out of our lives so that we'd be conformed to the image of Christ? Consider your ways, says Yahweh of hosts. And then in Zechariah 1.3, I love this. He uses the Yahweh of hosts three times in the passage. Listen to this. Therefore, say to them, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, return to me, declares Yahweh of hosts, that I may return to you, says Yahweh of hosts. Do you know what his beck and call is? Would you return to me? Would you once again trust me? Would you allow me to be that place of refuge and rest for you? And yes, it is a place of woe. It is a place of fear in the sense that it is perfect holiness and righteousness. But he's wanting to do that in your life so you can trust him. So would you consider your ways and would you return fully to him? And is it possible that you can invite him into any area of your life and just say, Jesus changed my life. Jesus purged my heart. Jesus dealt with the giants in the sin areas of my life. I don't know what the situations you may be dealing with, whether it's family or financial or roommates, you know, or, or whether it's things for the future or looking at the culture as a whole or whatever it may be for you, but do you realize there's no reason to forebode? That there's no reason to walk in anxiety and fear. Why? Because we know who our God is. He's a Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we thank you that you are high and lifted up. Lord, I pray that we would see you as a place of great refuge and rest. That even the birds can find refuge in your dwelling place, O oh Lord of hosts. And Lord, we know it is a place of woe. We know it's a place when we see your perfect holiness and righteousness, it does cause us like Isaiah to be, woe is me, I am undone. But Lord, you want that because you want to take that coal from the altar and touch our lips and purify our lives and conform us to the image of Christ. Lord, thank you that you dealt a death blow to sin and death and the grave and, and, and the devil at the cross. And that you, the warrior, you, the, the Lord's mighty and, str- and strong, the, the Lord mighty in battle, you battled on our behalf and won. So Lord, could you cause us to turn, return to you? Lord, could we not hide any areas of our life that need sanctification Lord, could we invite you in as Jehovah's Sabbath oath into every arena of our lives? And could we see you triumphant, be, be triumphant in every arena? Could, could you allow us to realize that, that we are more than overcomers? We are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And that is not on our strength or our ability, it is on you and yours. Lord, I realize that the future looks darkened bleak, and your bride is is walking in fear and anxiety with great foreboding and and trepidation for the future, but Lord, you win, that you are mighty to save, that you are mighty to the pulling down of strongholds, that Lord, the, the, the enemy has nothing against you. In fact, you merely look down from heaven and scoff at them. Lord, could you allow us to realize that the enemy has nothing on us if we are seated in Christ Jesus, the Lord of hosts, the commander of the hosts of heaven. Lord, we thank you, we love you for who you are and what you are doing in our lives. We just give you the praise and the glory in your precious, powerful name. Amen.